your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We completed our series in the book of 2 Thessalonians, and uh, next Sunday I will begin a series on uh, deacons. I had told you a few weeks ago that my plan was to start that process of raising up some deacons. Now, our church has been through a lot of growth over the years, and there's some time years ago where I would have loved to have had a deacon, but the church just wasn't ready. I think that we are now at that place with this church, Meriden Hills, is ready to have a, a few deacons, and that's going to be on me to give you the scriptural background of what is a deacon, and then it'll be on you to choose among you the deacons and devote them in, and to have them start serving you and your families in ways that I just cannot serve. Uh, my heart is for you. My heart loves you, loves your family, loves this church, loves the ministries here, but I'm only one guy. And as the church is getting larger, that is becoming more and more evident. Uh, in fact, there's been a few occasions recently where I have been um, honestly ashamed of the fact that I could not be there for some members when they needed me. And uh, there's not much I could have done to change that, but the shame was still there. I, I am overly stretched. I'm not saying that to complain. I'm saying that to show you and to tell you the need. And so God has brought us to that point. I've been able to do mostly what has to be done up to 2023, now in this year, that's no longer the case, and God has laid on my heart to now bring in some men who can assist in that. So be in prayer as we start that series next Sunday on deacons, but let's go ahead and take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 today. The title of this morning's message is Guiding Our Steps. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter 6. Now, there are the commandments. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord, O God, of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. This passage, of course, is dealing with the call on parents, not just fathers, but parents, plural, to train up their children in the commandments of the Lord, to train them up in the statutes of the Lord. Uh, I'm going to read a verse for you, verse 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. God knows the human condition better than any. He created us. He created us in our imperfection, but man chose to walk away from that perfect state. Man chose to walk away from paradise, the Garden of Eden. Man chose to walk away from everything that God intended towards chaos, destruction, towards sin, towards death. That was man's choice, not God's. God knew the tendency of man when he created him to walk towards sin and from righteousness. God knew the end result and warned Adam and Eve of that end result, and yet man took it anyways. God knows our heart. God knows your heart. And God understands how easy it is for us, humanity, to stray. Have you strayed at any point in your life? 
everyone in this room is going to say yes. Oh boy, have I strayed. Some of us have strayed to our shame for years. We can think back to years of our life where we have wandered from God. Some of us, to our shame, are straying even now from God. Now, straying from God is any motion from God rather than toward God. So if you are not walking towards God, you are straying from God. And like being on a boat in the ocean, not rowing doesn't mean you're not moving. The current still moves you, whether you are rowing or not. And folks, you are on a boat in the ocean. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, I'm not really straying, but I'm not really running tons from God. I'm just drifting. Hey, drifting is movement. But that movement of the world will have you drift from God. That's the natural course of humanity. That is a natural way of this world. If you are drifting, you are not drifting to God. You are drifting from God. And God, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as he established the nation of Israel, he deals with, by the way, the beginning of Deuteronomy. This is the beginning of all the laws. Now, God has given some laws. God's going to give a whole lot more after Deuteronomy 6. A whole lot more. And so after he's given some, and before he gives the rest, God deals with this important topic of influencing the next generation, of guiding the steps of the children. Did you notice that in the verses I read? He said, I want you to teach your children, your sons, and your son's son. Your children and your grandchildren. Because let's be honest, that's about where your influence ends. By the time great-grandchildren come along, either you started really young, or you're kind of coming to the end of your influence. Your great-grandchildren, by the time they're 9, 10, 11, and are ready to learn, aren't going to look at their great-grandparents as the one to teach them. They're going to think you're old-fashioned. They're going to think you don't know what you're talking about. Your grandchildren, oh yeah, they'll definitely, they'll want to hear what you have to say if they respect you. Your children, I would hope the same. Great-grandchildren, eh, not so much. They may not like your cookies. They may like your food, but they're not going to come to you for wisdom and advice if you're even able to give it at that point in your life. God knows that, and again, he's saying, hey, your, your realm of influence is on your children and your grandchildren. And never stop influencing. Never stop guiding them. And don't think your job is done when they become 18. Your job continues in a different way. You are still a mom. You are still a dad. You are still an adult. And you still have much to teach them. You didn't teach them everything you know in 18 years. I guarantee you that. Possibly due to them not wanting to hear everything you know up to that point. There's a whole lot more they need to learn after they're 18. And then once they have children, guess what? You get to start the process all over again with the grandchildren. There is much work to be done. Work in the lives of the next generation and the following generation. Why? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives us a glimpse of what would happen if a parent fails in this area. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's a long one. But you can kind of look at the middle of the chapter, and you'll see God warns them. And he says, when you go to the promised land, it's going to get easy for you. I will, I will set you up with blessing. And as it gets easier, you will be tempted to remember, or not remember, excuse me, tempted to not remember all that God has done for you. You'll be tempted to forget. And in forgetting, you will drift from God. And so here, in these verses, God says, 
I want you to establish the truth so strong in your home that it's on your forehead, that it's on your hand, that when you walk into your house, it's on the door frame of your door. I want it to be established so strong that you talk about it every day, in the morning, during the day, at night. A lot of parents think that it is someone else's job to train their children. You say, you're shaking your head, no, no, we don't think that. No, no, I'm not saying that you want someone else to take your children. I'm saying you believe it's someone else's job to train your children. The church's job. The church has failed my child. My child is a rebellious child. They're running from God. Boy, it must be the church's fault. The school has failed my child. I mean, I'm paying good money to send them to a Christian private school. All that money has gone to waste because my child is a wreck. The school has failed my child. If you think those things, then you believe it is someone else's job to train your child. And I'm here to tell you today, it is not someone else's job. It is your job as a parent. Now, be grateful. In a room like this, there are many other men and women who want to partner with you in training your child. We love children. We love God. We love his kingdom. We want to partner with you, but we do not want to replace you. And the danger is when you seek to be replaced. I see three steps or three points in this morning's message guiding our steps. Point number one, a lesson lived. Point number two, a lesson learned. And point number three, a lesson lost. Let's go to verses one and three again, a lesson lived. In verse one, we read, now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land, whether you go to possess this. Letter A, it is difficult to teach what you do not understand. If you are an adult and God has placed children in your life, children that are of your blood or children that are of your heart, children that are of your blood came from your DNA, children that are of your heart you embraced as your own. Maybe the children of your heart are nieces or nephews. Maybe they're younger cousins. Maybe they're students in your class. Maybe they're children in this church. Maybe they're just a child that God has brought in your path and you love them like family. They are children of your heart although not of your blood. If you want to teach that child the truths of Scripture, you must first understand them for yourself. Otherwise, you are a teacher trying to teach math when the students know more than you, and it's obvious in the class that they do. You are a parent who gives instruction, the child says why, and you say, because I said so. Not because you're annoyed, because you don't have an answer past that instruction. Now, I understand at some point as a parent, your children just have to follow you, respect you, and obey you, and the response needs to be, because I told you to, and you need to do what's right. I get that. But when that is always your response, your children will start to recognize, my dad doesn't know what he's talking about. My mom doesn't understand why we do these things. Why do we have these beliefs? Because we were told by who? By a pastor, by a teacher. Now, you may say because the Bible says, but can you show me in the Bible where it says what you believe? You can point at a verse, but can you explain why that verse uh, results in your belief system? Because there's plenty of people who point to the same verse and come up with a different uh, opinion. You cannot teach what you do not deeply understand. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, before God tells these, I believe, men, but of course, women, mothers and fathers, parents both, before he tells the parents to teach the children, he tells them first to live their own belief, 
to show them in their life what that lesson looks like. To understand it on a level where it's been applied personally. Not do as I say, but rather do as I do. There's a lot of parents who say, do as I say. There's a lot of parents who train, do as I say. Children need adults in their life who say, do as I do. Watch me and follow what I do. Whether you hear what I say or not, it doesn't really matter. Because if you follow what I do, you will live in success. Letter B. The faith of a Christian does not take holidays. Number two, verse two, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, thy son's son, all the days of thy life. Not all your life, but all the days of your life, implying implying every single day that you are alive, I want you to live the lessons that I've given you. Do not take a holiday. Do not take a break from truth. Don't take a break from following God. Don't take a break from your journey of faith. You know what's ironic? Is most Christians, I believe, take a break every week. It's a six-day break with the one day on and six days off. And you know what? The one day they're on, they're only on one hour. They're on call for one hour a week. And the remaining hours of the week, God, don't bother me. My phone's on silent. I'll see you next Sunday. For the one hour of visitation. That's it. That is not a life of faith. That is not a life of commitment. That is hypocrisy. I'm not saying you can't be saved and be a hypocrite. I believe you can be. I believe it's possible for someone to have faith in Christ and live a life of hypocrisy. Just don't be that one. You say, well, I'm going to heaven, so why does it matter if I'm a hypocrite or not, if I'm going to heaven? I'll tell you why it matters. Deuteronomy chapter 6, because your kids see it. And if not your kids, someone else's kids will see it. And although you may be a sincere believer living in hypocrisy, your children who see it will say, well, what's the point? And they won't believe anything. And what they do end up believing by 18 or 19 will be completely contrary to Scripture, to what you say because you didn't live it. So sure, your salvation is secured. Your eternity is locked in because you have trusted Christ as your Savior, but you have doomed the faith of your children. You have doomed the faith of your grandchildren because you chose to live a life of hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. Taking a vacation, taking a holiday from the lessons that you should be living six days of the week, it's a holiday for you. You do what you want, how you want, when you want, what you want. Christians, your salvation does not depend on what you do during the week. Your salvation depends on what Christ did 2,000 years ago and your faith in it. But someone else's salvation might depend on what you do during the week. Not that you can save them with what you do during the week, but what you do during the week may push them from God and salvation or draw them to God and salvation. What you do during the week matters much. The lesson lived, the letter C. Those who follow God's truth need not experience his judgment. Hear, therefore, O Israel, observe to do it, that it may be well with thee and that ye might increase mightily. 
Those who follow God's truth need not experience his judgment. You know, I think a lot of Christians believe that if I want God's blessings, I got to do good. I've got to earn God's blessings. I've got to earn God's mercy, earn God's grace. If I do a lot of good things this week, if I make all the right choices, God's going to bless my family. Why would we think that? Because people tell you that. Preachers tell you, if you give money to the church, God will bless you in return. If you come to church every Sunday, God will bless you in return. And so you get this idea that God can be bought off with the cheap price of your filthy good works. You say, filthy good works, what does that mean? I'm just describing it as the Bible describes it. In the Old Testament, our good works are as filthy rags. Your filthy good works aren't enough to buy off God. And God can't be bought. So that's two strikes against you. Folks, do not believe the lie that your good deeds earn your blessings. They don't. That your good works earn God's mercy. They don't. Mercy and grace, by the nature of their definition, are are offered to those who don't deserve them. Not to those who do deserve them. And God says, when I see you, I offer you daily mercy. You don't deserve it, but I give it to you anyways. God sees a Christian who needs mercy every day. You say, well, if that's the case, then how do we get blessing? If we don't get blessing by earning it, why do some get it and why don't some get it? And how do I get it? Now, today is Father's Day, and there's no greater father than God. We've said that many times now. But let's talk about the dads in this room. We're not even close to God. Our compassion, our love, our sacrifice doesn't even compare in any way to what God offers. And yet let's talk about us. Why do you give good things to your children? Because you love them. Because they are your children. You don't have to be a great father to do good things for your children. You don't have to be an amazing father to make sacrifices for your family. You do it out of love. You do it because they're yours. Now, why do you judge your children? Sometimes because they deserve it. Sometimes you judge them. Yes, they deserve it, but there's a bigger reason. You're trying to recorrect them, redirect them, bring them back to a place of success. It's not purely a matter of, well, they messed up, they deserve judgment. You have a bigger plan in mind. You want them back on the path of success. But here's the truth about good dads. If you are not forced in the moment to judge your child, your heart wants to do what? What do you want to do for your children when you're not forced to judge them? You want to bless them. When your child does not put you in a position where you have to correct them, where you have to redirect them, when you're not put in a position where you have to have that talk with them, the nature of fatherhood is to at all other times desire to bless them. It's not that the child earns judgment or earns blessing. It's that the child needs to be corrected or at all other times benefits from the heart of blessing you want to give them. God wants to bless you. Why? Because he's a good, good father. God wants to bless you. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because God knows what blessings can do for the heart of his children. God knows that a hand of love can bring you a lot farther than the hand of judgment. The hand of judgment falls when necessary. God will not withhold it when it needs to be given. 
But God does not want to bring the hand of judgment in your life every day. God doesn't want to bring the hand of judgment upon your life all the time. God wants to offer the hand of blessing, not because you've earned it, but because you are his child. And men, that is how we are called to father our own children. Do not offer conditional love, blessing when they deserve it, judgment when they deserve it. Offer unconditional love, blessing all the time, and the hand of judgment when necessary to bring them back to the path of blessing. A lesson lived. Let's now go to point number two, a lesson learned. Verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Letter A. There's no greater lesson to teach our children than to love God. You say, you know what? I think that the best thing I teach my child to do is to attend church faithfully. That is a good thing. That is not the best thing. The best thing I can teach my child to do is to give um, money consistently. That's a good thing. It is not a great thing. It's not the best thing. Oh, the best thing I can do for my child is to teach them respect for their elders. That is a good thing. It is not the best thing. The best thing I can do for my child is to teach them to love people. Oh, now you're getting there, but you're still not the best thing. The best thing you can teach your child is to love God. Love God. Now, not all children learn the same way. Some children require lessons that another child does not require. Some children require lessons shown, other only require it told. Some children require a lesson shown or told and repeated many times before it hits and sinks into them. Do not assume that all your children are the same. Do not teach them all the same. Do not assume that all the children in your life, whether yours or nieces or nephews or students, all learn the same way. They do not. The burden of responsibility falls on the teacher when giving the lesson, not on the student. Do students have a responsibility? Yes. But the greatest burden is on the teacher, not the student. We don't pay the students to come learn. We pay the teachers to teach them. Why? Because we understand they carry the bigger burden. As the parent, stop trying to push that burden off on your children and saying, well, my child just won't learn, so you know what? Forget it. No, it's not their fault for not learning. It's your fault for not teaching in a way they can learn. I understand that there are some children who just don't want to learn no matter how you teach them. I get that. I believe that there is something missing on the side of a teacher for most children who are not learning. Not all. I understand there are the unique some. No matter how great of a teacher you are, they will not learn. But for most students, something is missing on the side of the teacher. The teacher does not understand the lesson deeply. The teacher does not live the lesson in their own life. Therefore, they're giving mixed signals. Or the teacher is offering conditional love, saying, well, if you want this, you've got to do this, rather than I give it to you freely because I love you. The greatest lesson we can teach anyone, including children, is to love God. And if our children aren't learning it, do not ask, what is wrong with them? Ask, what is wrong with me? What am I missing? Why am I not able to communicate this valuable lesson to my child? or to any child in my life? Why can I not show the children in my life 
how important this truth is. God, seek my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Try me. Show me. What am I missing as a teacher that my students are not learning? Because the easy way, the easy path, is to always blame the student. I am a teacher at our school, Mid-State Christian Academy. I've taught elementary as young as third grade. I've taught high school as old as 12th grade. I teach middle school, high school, math, Bible. I've taught science, English, history. I've taught it all. And when I give tests, every time I give a test, I ask myself, why is my class getting this grade? What have I done to fail them? Now, there's sometimes, being realistic, okay, I can see that this student didn't do well because they missed multiple days they were sick. This student didn't do well because God just hasn't given them a brain that, that understands math on an A level. I get that. So I'm looking for something different from them. But there are times where I have to be honest with myself, and the class has got a lower grade because I did not teach the content as well as I could have or should have. A lot of teachers want to blame the students. Real teachers change and adapt for the benefit of the student. God has given you students in your life. God wants you to teach lessons to them, but the greatest of which is love. And if you cannot teach them that lesson of love, then what is the benefit of all the other lessons? Because we're told in the New Testament that all the commandments, all of the law, falls under love. That when you teach love and when you understand love, everything else falls in place. You say, well, Pastor Russ, how am I going to teach all of the scripture to my child by the time they're 18? I'll make it easy for you. Teach them how to love God by the time they're 18, and they will be set up for success. Everything else will fall in place. Let her be. A child benefits from many teachers, but none should replace the parent. Verse 7, thou, you, parent, you, dad, you, mom, you, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Are there other adults that can help you with that? Sure, most definitely. Are there other adults that can show them in a different way the same thing you're showing them? Yes, very valuable, by the way. In fact, as a youth pastor, uh, I remember many, many times I would teach the children for 11 months and three weeks out of the year some important content, some important topics of Scripture, and they just wouldn't get it for whatever reason. I take them to Bible camp for one week. That youth pastor touches on five topics, five of which I've been teaching all year, and the kids come back from camp saying, wow, that was amazing. I learned something I never heard before. I'm like, are you kidding me? Where have you been for the last 11 months? Because I've been saying that same thing. In fact, i got to be honest, I thought I said it better than the guy that preached at camp. And you think now you've heard it? Like, what are you talking about? Where have you been? Parents, I, I feel your pain. I know you feel the same way. You've been teaching your child a lesson. They don't get it. They come back from school and say, hey, my Bible teacher said this. It was such an amazing truth. Let me tell you about it. And you're like, yep, the same thing I've been saying for three months. You're now going to tell back to me? Well, good for you, and I love your teacher. Uh, you know, What's up with that? Parents, I get it. Don't be upset. Be thrilled that other adults are teaching the same lesson in a different way. They're reinforcing the important truths that are in your heart, in your life. You should desire that. But here's the difference reinforcing what you teach should never be replacing what you teach. Meaning, do not let your children learn under someone who's teaching something different than you. It confuses them. You're asking for chaos. Number two, do not let your children learn under someone who's teaching something you don't teach. Because one or two things will happen. Your child will either say, ah, so you're wrong because you're not learning, you're not living or teaching what this teacher told me is true, or 
they're going to call out the teacher. And they'll probably have issues both ways. It is your responsibility to teach your children and then put them under people who reinforce what you're already teaching. Letter C. God should not be part of your life. He should be your life. You look at verse 8 and 9. Bind them on thine hand, frontlets between thine eyes. Write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Children are a lot sharper than you might think. If you can remember back to your childhood, do you remember how much you observed? Do you remember how much you noticed? As adults, we have forgotten what it was like to be a child. As adults, we have forgotten what it was like to be a teenager. Children are watching. And you say, well, my teenager isn't watching, and there might be a reason why. Dare I tell you? Your teenager is no longer watching. Because what they saw when they were a child turned them away. It's not that the teenagers aren't watching. The better way to say it is, my teenager stopped watching. My teenager stopped watching me. My teenager stopped watching my pastor, our church, the other adults in their life. They stopped watching. Because I guarantee you, they were watching at one time. What was it they saw that caused them to stop watching? Because nowhere in Scripture does God ever state, condone, wink an eye at, or allow for people from the age of 12 to 18 to stop learning, to stop living the lessons that they were taught. Nowhere does God say that's okay. God's intention is that we learn and we live the lessons consistently throughout our life. Why did your teenager stop watching? What did they see that caused them to give up on what they were being taught? What did they see? What did they not see? What did that child not see in your life that they said, I'm no longer going to watch? Did they not see God permeating your life in all parts of it? God. I am who I am because of God. I go where I go because of God. I do what I do because of God. Did your child not see that? Did your child see you making money, your God? Did your child see you making yourself, your God? What did your child see? What did your child not see that caused them to stop looking? God should be a part of our entire life, every day, no vacations. Number three, a lesson lost. And then we get to verses 10 through 25. I am not, for sake of time, going to read these verses, but you can see as you kind of skim them, God says in verse 10, it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land with which he sware to thy fathers. Let's go down to verse 11. And houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and well, wells digged which thou diggest not, meaning God saying, I blessed you, not because you deserved it. I just gave you a bunch of really great stuff. Verse 12. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. Fathers stopped living. Parents stopped teaching. Children stopped learning. And the lessons that were once lived and the lessons that were once learned are now lost. God warned Israel of this possibility. He said, be careful lest you end up in this way. 
We know the history of Israel. We read the story of Israel, and that's exactly what happened. What was the end result for Israel? Exile, punishment, judgment, persecution, death, loss of all of the potential success that was before them, all gone. Because the parents stopped living and the children stopped learning. And what's ironic? It was during the good times that this happened. It was when they had everything they could want that the parents said, this is so nice, I don't need God. And it was when they had everything that they could want, the children said, this is great, I didn't need God, and I don't need God, only to discover that everything they had was from God. Letter A. When times are good, grace can be forgotten. When times are good, grace can be forgotten. What is grace? When God gives you a gift you do not deserve. It's like the videos you watch on YouTube of the child who gets a Christmas gift. It's a nice gift. You would say, wow, I would love to have that as a child. And yet the child opens the gift, takes it out of the box, throws it on the ground and says, this is not what I wanted. It's like your own children and your own grandchildren when you get them a gift that was fairly expensive. It was not cheap. They open it. They toss it in the pile of all the other expensive gifts. And they say, is that it? And you're thinking, you know what, son? Yes, that's it. (laughs) It wasn't going to be, but now it is. What has happened? In all of the abundant blessings, we have become spoiled. That's what's happened. You say, God, why don't you give me so many blessings? If you love me unconditionally, Why don't I have the unlimited credit card? Why don't I have the nice vehicles and the nice house? And God says, I love you too much to spoil you. You can't see the future. God can. You don't know where your heart can take you. God does. And God says, lest I lose you, I will not spoil you. Now, some in this room... God has spoiled a little bit, just like God, as fathers, spoil their children occasionally. You've been through moments of spoiling and maybe currently are in one. But as with most Christians, they come and go. There are moments of highs and moments of lows, moments of increase and moments of decrease, moments of much and moments of not so much. Why? Because if it was a constant high for most of us in the the increase an abundant blessing, we would forget God's grace. And God loves us too much to lose us to being spoiled. Letter B, the gift may be lost when it is elevated above the giver. As you read the following verses, God warns of what will happen if they forget God. If they lose sight of God's goodness, and if they say, well, we've got everything we could want, everything we can need, life is so good, who needs God? God warns them of what can happen. He says, you will lose it all. You will lose the things you've got. I will have to judge you rather than what I want, bless you. When times are good, grace can be forgotten, but let her be. The gift may be lost when it is elevated above the giver. Do you enjoy what you have? Then here is my challenge to you. 
never enjoy it more than your God? Do you love what God has given you? How about this? Do you love who God has given you? Then I implore you, never love them or it more than the God who gave them and it to you. Enjoy your God above all else. Love your God above all else. And you are not in danger of losing what God has given you. Let her see, and we're done. We must worship God today for his mercy of yesterday. We must worship God today for his mercy of yesterday. Verse 22, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all the household, behold, before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments. In the previous verses, God tells a story of a child who comes to the father and says, Dad, why do we have these holidays? Why do we have these celebrations? Why do we, we hold these worship services? And God says, as fathers, tell your children, not because of what God did today. We don't celebrate what God is doing today. We are celebrating what God did yesterday and the yesterdays before. Some Christians want a new reason to celebrate every day. And if they're not given a reason to celebrate today, they don't celebrate. Like again, spoiled children, God, give me something today that I might worship you. God, give me something today that I might celebrate your awesome power. God, today, reveal yourself to me, and I am yours once again. Well, as we're told in this passage, that was not how God intends it. God desires that we celebrate him every day, but not necessarily for what he does every day. It is okay to celebrate and worship God for what he did yesterday. God has been merciful in our lives. Do you really need him to every day do something amazing for you that you will stay by his side? Are you that weak? Are you that shallow? Are you that prideful? Are you that selfish that you need God to daily reveal himself to you? And if he does not, like a spoiled child, you sit on the ground and you pout. Where is my God? Where is he today? I want to see him today. And God says, was it not enough that I was with you yesterday? Was it not enough that last month I did that amazing thing? Do you really need something again today? Christian, it is time for us to remember what God has done and not require him to show us every day who he is. It is enough that he's already shown us who he is yesterday. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are a good father, and it is our responsibility as adults in this room, moms and dads, uncles and aunts, grandparents, to live the lessons of your goodness for the children, the next generation. But we must take the next step. We must also teach the lessons that they may be learned by the next generation, that they are not lost by the next generation. 
I pray for the dads in this room and that we would evaluate why are the children in our home not learning? Why do they not seem to embrace the truth, the most important truth that you are to be loved? Where are we failing our families that these lessons are not learned? Speak to our hearts as dads. Speak to our hearts as moms first that we might adjust, that the children may learn. I thank you for the women and men in this room who have stood up and become the father and mother figures to children who do not have fathers and mothers. I thank you for the men and women in this room who have been the fathers and mothers to their own children that you desire us to be. As we celebrate dads today, both dads and fathers, most importantly, we celebrate you, the father of all Christians. We love you deeply. I pray the Holy Spirit, as he spoke to our hearts, would show us the next steps that we should take this week to become better children, better parents, and better Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.